Welcome to the serialized podcast edition of Paper Arrows, a presentation in six episodes of my master's thesis in geography at the University of California, Berkeley, based on field research I conducted in Honduras in 2000 and 2001. I am the author and narrator, Daniel Graham. Episode 5, Resisting Babylonia, Overture. Today's episode takes us from a municipal meeting in rural Gualaco to a roiling protest on the streets of Honduras's capital city, Tegucigalpa. Gualaco Mayor Rafael Ulloa lured me into the municipal meeting under the pretext that I would meet people who could tell me more stories about Canuto. Instead, what I got was a crash course on agrarian social movement dynamics, as charming stories of social bandits quickly gave way to a high-stakes struggle to oust an unwanted dam project and its employees from a local village. When gunfire felled one of the dam's most vocal opponents, stories alone proved insufficient to the task of protecting patrimonio. I bring you along for the ride as I, too, got swept up in the action. Before we dive in, a word is in order about the text of Episodes 5 and 6. This podcast is essentially a straight reading of a master's thesis I wrote in 2001 and 2002, and that represented the best information I had available at the time. While most of it still holds up, I want to issue a disclaimer with respect to the content you will hear today. The reading mentions that one important bone of contention surrounding a controversial dam project has to do with the site of the construction within the buffer zone of Sierra de Agalta National Park. Since the time of the Gualaco protests of 2001, however, careful cartographic and survey work have shown that the Babylonia Dam in fact lies just outside the park's original buffer zone, not within it, as I and others earnestly believed and argued at the time. This claim, and the belief behind it, formed one piece, an important one, of Gualaqueño's multi-layered, counter-discursive narrative that the dam and its promoters had no rightful place within the moral community or upon the land that members of that community claimed as their own. Section 4. Resisting the Babylonia Hydroelectric Project He who trusts in his riches will fall like a dry leaf, but the just will renew themselves like the branches. Handwritten sign inside the church kindergarten in El Ocotal, Gualaco. 4.1. The meeting, June 30th, 2001. Morning. I arrived in Gualaco on Wednesday, June 27, 2001, and immediately began making contacts for interviews about Canuto, which were to form the grist of my master's thesis. One of the first people I met was the municipal alcalde, or mayor, Rafael de Jesus Ulloa. A tall man with a sad smile, Rafael was a former schoolteacher as well as a rancher. Though he had accumulated extensive land holdings, Rafael projected an air of earnest humility that was incongruous with his social and economic station, and which might have helped account for his popularity among the poor peasants of the Gualaco countryside. The mayor acceded to my request for guidance in my project, but his offer came with a catch. He requested I attend a special meeting being held in the town hall that Saturday, June 30th. He assured me I would learn a lot about the politics and circumstances of life in Gualaco if I made it to the meeting. 
and I would meet plenty of people who had known Canuto. For the rest of the week, I conducted interviews here and there with various informants I met while looking forward to the Saturday meeting. Saturday rolled around quickly enough, and I sauntered into the meeting room at about 10 a.m. The meeting had been scheduled to start at 9 that morning. Previous experience with local politics elsewhere in Olancho had conditioned me to arrive plenty late or risk numbing my backside on a hard wooden chair for an hour or more while waiting for participants to arrive from their cornfields or from far-flung villages. Today I had misjudged. The small, unlit room was full of serious-faced people, thirteen men and one woman, and they were intently discussing the logistics of a protest march in the capital that was planned for the following Wednesday, July 4th. They very briefly paused to acknowledge my arrival as I walked in, then resumed their discussion. As I listened in, I gathered that the protest was related to the construction of a small hydroelectric facility at the top of the Chorros de Babilonia, the 4.4-megawatt dam, dubbed the Proyecto Hidroeléctrico Babilonia, or PHB, was under construction within the buffer zone of Sierra de Agalta National Park, despite laws protecting the buffer zone and local coffee production from other development, and despite an August 2000 poll conducted jointly by the municipality and the Catholic Church, indicating that 83% of affected families were opposed to the project. All the while, the engineering company in charge of the private venture, Energisa, was enjoying success, at least within Honduran political circles, in its efforts to portray itself as a local, green answer to Honduras's development needs. The group's goals for the march and protest were twofold. To increase public awareness of the social and environmental abuses committed by Energisa and its government allies, and to pressure Congress to order Energisa to halt construction. Tensions were high in the meeting room. The demonstration planners spoke as though everything hinged on the success of the demonstration. The increasingly violent tenor of the conflict preoccupied the people in the room. The mayor had received several death threats in recent months, and Father Freddy Benitez, who had overseen the PHB opinion poll the previous year, was stabbed in the arm one night in early March by a drunken mendicant who may have exchanged his services for a bottle of guaro. One meeting attendee, a self-professed radical peasant activist from Honduras's north coast province of Colón, framed the conflict in especially dire terms. The matter is urgent. If something isn't done soon, there will be deaths here. Others nodded in agreement. By the time the meeting adjourned, at a little afternoon, church representatives were mobilized to plan the staging of the march itself, while the village representatives at the meeting had each been charged with specific organizing tasks in order to ready their neighbors for the bus ride into the capital. This would be no mean accomplishment. They had a little over two days to meet their goal of rounding up 100 to 200 protesters who would commit to occupying the capital plaza indefinitely. For many of them, this would be their first trip outside of Olancho. Almost none of the demonstrators had a lot of money to support themselves away from home, and this year drought loomed as a worrisome likelihood that could devastate families who spent what small reserves they had on this risky political gamble. Still, the group seemed confident of its ability to fill the three buses they had rented for the Tuesday afternoon drive to Tegus. As they filed out of the building, some of them stopped to talk to me, 
several of them suggesting I should make the trip with them. Canuto might be interesting, offered the dramatic agitator from Cologne, but this, this is far more interesting. You should come with us and change your topic. As I politely demurred, he chirped, I'll even help you write it! And his stony demeanor gave way to a wild gale of manic laughter. 4.2. The Shooting. June 30th. Afternoon. After running a couple of errands, I ate a quick lunch, anxious to get out to my afternoon appointment. It was some time between 2 o'clock and 2.30 as I climbed in my truck for the drive out to the village of La Venta. As I was about to pull onto the highway, two national police trucks sped by, pulling a trail of dust in their wake. The bed of each truck was carrying several uniformed men, and it struck me as odd to see so many policemen in an area noted for its dearth of law enforcement presence. I saw that the young men in the back of one of the trucks were laughing about something, and I inferred from their apparent levity that they must be headed towards an easy assignment, or perhaps were making a weekend getaway to the coast. La Venta lies at the eastern end of the municipality, and it took me a while to get there from the main town of Gualaco. It was getting on toward late afternoon when I arrived in the village. A friend of mine had told me that Eduardo Antunes would talk my ear off, so I looked forward to meeting him. He greeted me in a friendly manner as I approached his house, and we sat together on wooden chairs on his front porch. I looked out across the flat expanse of the small town, noted the gathering of dark clouds overhead, and wondered whether the long-delayed monsoon rains would come that day. Eduardo's granddaughter played nearby while I sipped Kool-Aid, and prepared to soften Eduardo up with small talk. I had not yet retrieved my tape recorder from my pickup, so I merely told him I was interested in talking with him that afternoon about the famous bandit, Canuto. Eduardo agreed to the interview right away, and without pause he began to speak. You see, Canuto was not really a bandit. He was forced to do things the way he did because the laws here are not for everyone. They were created for the rich and by the rich. When it comes to helping the poor, the laws suddenly do not exist. So Canuto found himself in a situation not unlike that in which we find ourselves today. There is a dam company near here, and today they have murdered one of our community leaders in the hamlet of El Ocutal. It was 3.15 p.m. when I got this news. The murder, Eduardo let me know, had taken place at 1 p.m., Somewhat in shock, I ran back to the truck to get my tape recorder. I wanted Eduardo to repeat what he had just told me. My mind was slow in coming to terms with this new revelation, and for a few moments I was still thinking of conducting a formal interview. But by the time I had read Eduardo the obligatory interview consent form, I thought to put a question to him. Will there be a police investigation? The sorrow in his eyes sufficed for an answer. Recalling the laughing police officers that passed me on the highway, they must have been headed towards Ocotal. I felt sick. I knew Ocotal had no means of telephone communication. That information, together with my knowledge that the police were arriving from somewhere far away, scarcely more than an hour after the killing took place, gave me the sinking feeling that the police might have known about everything ahead of time, and were merely on their way to Ocotal to keep an appointment. I decided to try to document the murder and gather what evidence might still be left at the scene, since I had tools at my disposal, camera, tape recorder, and private vehicle that the villagers themselves probably did not. 
I had not yet been to the hamlet of El Ocotal, so I had Eduardo get in my truck with me and show me the way. On the drive there, we stopped to give a ride to Gustavo Montoya, a Catholic lay minister for the tiny church in Ocotal. Gustavo, who lived in La Venta and preached in Ocotal, was like others from the area whose sense of spatial affinity covered a whole cluster of villages and hamlets in the Rio Babilonia watershed. Ocotal was the epicenter of the Babylonia Dam controversy because that hamlet lay nearest the base of the waterfall, was most at risk in case of a dam failure, and had been selected by Energisa as the site of its turbines. Nevertheless, the Ocotaleños who opposed the dam were not alone in this. Other villages, I would learn, had strong contingents of dam opponents as well. Some of these people merely sympathized with the Ocotaleños, others bridled at the company's ability to ride roughshod over municipal objections to the project. Still others were worried about their compromised ability to have gravity-feed water systems installed in their villages after the river's flow was diverted and nearly everyone expressed alarm at the company's tactics of intimidation, which reportedly including the stationing of private, armed guards outside at least one area elementary school. It turned out that Gustavo had a very personal stake in the unfolding events. He was a cousin to the victim, Carlos Flores, who had turned 29 just days before he was shot. As we drove up the gravel highway towards Ocotal, Eduardo operated my tape recorder, soliciting commentary from Gustavo pertaining to the history of antagonism between Energisa and villagers in Ocotal and other affected hamlets, which had led to Carlos's killing by six armed guards under the employ of the engineering concern. Energisa, Gustavo told us, presented an environmental impact statement that was totally false, to tell you the truth, we had every desire to dialogue, to put the cards on the table, to see to it that the studies, mainly those dealing with environmental impacts, could honestly say that the project would not harm the community in any way. But that's been impossible. They have hidden the facts. Actually, this problem is the government's fault because the Secretary of Natural Resources and the Environment, Xiomara Gomez de Caballero, disregarding the fact that the project is located within a national park, a reserve zone, gave Energisa the license to proceed. And that's why we in these communities have been fighting so hard. And it has been impossible, absolutely impossible, to get the authorities to listen to us. So when things started getting really bad here, we decided to forcefully take a bridge. And here came the police to take us away. Many compañeros wound up in jail. But the bridge that we took over is the access bridge to our community. And it was built with private community funds. It has been totally impossible to get Energisa to rethink things to the extent that they have now unleashed on us a terrible persecution that has affected a lot of us. Some of us have been sent to jail, others arrested and released with no charges against them. We understand this to be a struggle against powerful economic interests that are looming over us. And then suddenly we could see that even the parish priest here in Gualaco was attacked. They stabbed him. And this is all part of the same problem. And today they have killed one of our compañeros, someone who's worked very hard to see that this project not be carried out. But he's not the only victim. Maybe if they kill a few more, the project will be able to move ahead without any problem. So I don't know how you see it, if this is just... We turned off the dirt highway onto the village road that had been built and improved by the Ocotaleños with monies apportioned by the National Coffee Growers Association, Apro Café. We drove slowly over the bridge that had been the scene of the standoff in January of that year. 
Gustavo explained that they had successfully held the bridge for several days, refusing passage to the Energisa vehicles until the national police arrived. The police made several arrests and took the protesters to the jail in Juticalpa. The rest of the involved townspeople scattered, and Energisa's trucks rolled in. Those who had been taken in and charged now had this arrest on their records. Some others who got away were merely processed, procesado, in absentia. For Gustavo, the day of the arrests and the criminal processing was a symbolic moment that galvanized his sense that the powers of the provincial and central levels of government were arrayed against the communities of Gualaco. The term procesado, in a technical sense, merely indicates that a person has had a charge filed against him or her. But Gustavo and other Ocotaleños, I learned, understood the term quite differently. It meant they were marked for death. The practice of building up political troublemakers' criminal records before killing them, people told me, was the usual modus operandi in the region. On April 7th, a Honduran human rights umbrella organization, the National Coordinator Against Impunity, CONASIM, filed a paid announcement in the Tegucigalpa newspaper El Heraldo on behalf of those who were fighting to stop Energisa's project from going ahead. The advertisement denounced what Conasim saw as improper processing by the assistant regional prosecutor of several Ocotaleños for unsubstantiated accusations of destroying Energisa property. Carlos Flores was listed by name as one of the falsely accused. Conasim's reason for publishing the names of the accused was to reduce the possibility that these processed individuals' manufactured criminal record might be used to justify any subsequent deployment of violence against them by Energisa or the police. Gustavo was not one of those who were criminally processed, but this did not seem to lessen his anxiety. As a leader within the local Catholic Church, he had advocated a nonviolent strategy of opposition to Energisa's project. He worried, he told me, that the slightest violent provocation by community members would bring a hail of bullets upon all of them, and could provide a pretext for the forced displacement of the entire village. Now that Carlos had been killed, Gustavo felt his conscience could no longer permit him to restrain the village's more incendiary defenders from brandishing their weapons and using them. The outcome of a shooting war would not be favorable, and Gustavo knew it. Over the course of the afternoon, Gustavo ran through his projected doomsday scenario twice, wincing each time as though physically impacted by the dismal vision he summoned. Ocotal was tiny. Just a few scattered houses and a tiny Catholic chapel lay within sight of the road. We stopped at the little church and got out of the truck. He lived there, across the road, someone told me as we neared the entrance to the chapel. They shot him while he was getting ready to take a bath. He was half undressed. I entered the church. Colorful hand-drawn posters depicting Minnie Mouse and Winnie the Pooh graced the walls, reflecting the building's function as a kindergarten as well as a church. These happy drawings only accentuated the horror of the scene for me. There, in the center of the room, the stiffening body of Carlos Flores seemed to fill my field of vision. His cadaver rested on a bed that someone had brought in. Carlos's loved ones had not yet finished clothing him. He wore black pants and a black t-shirt, but his feet lay bare. Two of Carlos's neighbors struggled to pull socks over his feet, which had grown tumid in the three hours since his death. Once they had Carlos's socks on, the two men tied his legs together at the ankles with a long strip of cloth. 
and pulled his arms down by his sides. At each corner of his bed, a small white candle burned, affixed with melted wax to the bedposts. Blood from his head wounds soaked the pillow and mattress beneath him, and wads of toilet paper were only partly successful in keeping purple rivulets from streaming from his ears and nostrils. Carlos's grandmother Margarita held her hands to her face as she sat by his side. Her ululating wails at once spine-chilling and heart-wrenching were interspersed with invectives directed at the men who had taken Carlos's life. I, son of my soul, she cried. The ingrates did not respect the church. They shot you from right outside the church. I, the cowards, they had to kill you while you were unarmed. They could not face you like men. I, ay, ay, ay. Margaret paused long enough to wipe away a trickle of blood running from the corner of her grandson's mouth and to replace a bloody wad with fresh toilet paper in his left ear. Then she sat and resumed wailing. After some time spent looking at Carlos and sensing that people might want an explanation for my obtrusive presence, I sought out Carlos's father, Martin Solis, and expressed my concern that the murder be properly documented. Speaking briefly with him, I learned the police had already come and gone. No one had inspected Carlos's body. The police had merely scooped up all the machine gun shells they could find, leaving a good deal of shotgun shells behind briefly took people's testimony, and left. As far as Martin knew, no one was coming back. Martin agreed to help me collect evidence. He pulled up Carlos's shirt and, with assistance, rolled Carlos onto his side so I could photograph two bullet entry wounds in his back. After rearranging Carlos's shirt and laying him on his back, Martin indicated a third entry wound at Carlos's left temple, and an exit wound at the base of his skull. He and others speculated that all three wounds were inflicted by bullets fired from AK-47s or Uzis with which the suspects had been seen. Outside the church, I tape-recorded the testimony of eyewitnesses who claimed to see at least six Energisa guards, their faces covered with ski masks, stroll down the 500-meter path from the Energisa compound and situate themselves under the eaves of the church and around the perimeter of Carlos's front yard. Some had machine guns, others carried shotguns. The witnesses, frightened, then withdrew to their own homes. As Carlos stepped out of his house to draw water for a bucket bath, the gunmen triangulated upon him. One of Carlos's neighbors said Carlos yelled for her to stay in the house and protect her children because the gunmen were going to fire. Many of the shots missed Carlos. Several of these perforated his bathing bucket, while others scarred the nearby guapinol tree or skidded harmlessly in the dirt. Three hit their mark, however, and one witness recalled Carlos crying out, Ay, they have killed me! Everyone in Ocotal, of course, heard the shots ring out. People estimated hearing about 35 or 40 shots fired. Then the guards turned around and returned to their compound. The police had removed nearly all the machine gun shells from the scene before I arrived, but we were able to gather one 9mm shell and a large number of shotgun shells from the scene. We collected these shells in a plastic bag for presentation to the human rights organization COFADE, or Comité de Familiares de los Detenidos Desaparecidos en Honduras, in Tegucigalpa 
I believed the police had merely been, perhaps intentionally, careless in their collection of the evidence, but a human rights worker later interpreted the selective collection of shells as a deliberate attempt to hide evidence that machine guns, which are prohibited by law, had been used in the attack. Of course, murder is a crime regardless of the weapon used, but it would be easier to maintain that the guards were acting within their rights to defend themselves legally from gunfire if they restricted themselves to the use of legal firearms in their counterfire. Indeed, despite circumstantial and material evidence to the contrary, some newspaper and radio accounts of the murder cited the police as indicating that they could not discard the possibility that there had been an exchange of fire. Upset Ocotaleños, meanwhile, complained to me that though they had told the police that the known culprits were holed up in their Hisa compound a scant half-kilometer up the road, the police neglected to investigate further or make arrests. Another informant, someone close to the village but not from it, later gave a different accounting of events. According to the alternative version, the villagers purposely misled the police into believing the attackers had fled so they could later exact justice in their own manner. I do not have a sense of which rendition is the more faithful interpretation of what happened. No one in Okotal owned a camera or a tape recorder or any other device that could render their suffering real to those who had to weigh the words of police officers, government ministers, civil engineers, and respected businessmen against this collection of mostly poor, maize, banana, and coffee-farming peasants. I owned two cameras and had them both with me that day, so I lent one to the president of the village council. At his request, I took a photograph of those present who felt their own lives were now in imminent danger. The reasoning was that if we managed to publicize their peril, it might make it more difficult for Enerhisa to shoot others of them with impunity. I drove Gustavo back to La Venta, then made a second trip to Ocotal in the evening. That night I helped lift Carlos into his coffin, and in so doing I implicated myself as a positioned participant in the fight over Babylonia. Carlos was surprisingly heavy and very large by village standards. His broad shoulders pressed against the box's narrow confines as we tried to set him to rest. We had to lay his arms awkwardly over his torso and tamp him down to get him fully inside his undersized coffin. Then we slid the top of the simple pinewood box into place. Outside, in the dark, gunshots pierced the sky, but no rain fell. 4.3. The Protest, July 4th to 17th. On July 3rd, as the dam opponents made the four-hour bus trip into the capital, Honduras's Liberal Party candidate for president, Rafael Pineda Ponce, unveiled before the National Congress his plan for resolving the country's high-profile problem of gang violence. Pineda Ponce, who was serving as the president of the Congress, timed his bill, the so-called Law for the Prevention, Rehabilitation, and Social Insertion of People Integrated in Gangs, to coincide with the reconvening of the unicameral legislature after a one-month recess. If he were to win the tough presidential race against National Party candidate Ricardo Maduro, Pineda Ponce would have to pull out all the stops. The gang rehabilitation bill was to help Pineda Ponce launch the final stretch of his campaign for the November election, casting him as tough on crime while understanding of Honduras's disadvantaged youth. 
The next day, 200 angry Gualaqueños and hundreds of sympathizers from the capital city, many of them left-leaning students from the National University, were marching on the Capitol building, roaring angry epithets at the politician for his hypocrisy. At the urging of neckerchief-clad Marxist-Leninist student leaders, the marchers cried out together, It's not the gangs that are the problem. The President of Congress is the one who needs to be rehabilitated. At other times, the group chanted, Ping-pong, ping-pong, tu yerno es un maton, in reference to Pineda Ponce's timber magnate son-in-law, Jorge Chavez, who remains free despite widespread allegations he contracted the assassination of a prominent Olanchano environmentalist in 1998. By pointing to Pineda Ponce's alleged connection to the murder of a well-known environmental martyr from the same region, Carlos Escaleras of Catacamas, the Gualaco protesters lay claim to a similar environmental hero's status for their own fallen comrade, while drawing attention to the National Congress's legacy of environmental double-dealing in Olancho. In keeping with Honduras's recent tradition of popular protest, the Gualaco contingent made its way up the street toward the capital plaza and settled there for the night. After some cheering and singing, the capitalinos who had joined the Gualaqueños in their march went home leaving the Olanchanos to make their camp. Entire families had come, including infants. An important proof of the central government's liberal disposition is its forbearance of rowdy protests at the step of the capital, attack probably meant to give the lie to the very foundation of demonstrators' discontent with the state. Thus it was with the explicit understanding of, and cooperation with, the capital police, that the protesters set up camp under the auspices of the capital. A one-toilet restroom and a large sink, accessible from outside, were placed at the disposal of the demonstrators, and police helped protect the protesters by limiting access to the capital after dark to any visitors they detected who were not affiliated with the Gualaco group. Announcing it would be unsafe to return to El Ocotal until Energisa were made to leave, the protesters turned the area beneath the capital building into their interim village. With donations from various popular organizations in and around Tegucigalpa, the demonstrators had enough food to eat, at least for a while. Trained organizers from the Committee for the Defense of Human Rights in Honduras, CODE, worked with some of the protest leaders, including Adelmo Salaya and Gustavo Montoya, to set up an organizational structure for the makeshift community of protesters. The group set up a cooking subcommittee, a team of women using giant cauldrons over open fires and working in shifts spent 20 hours a day cooking beans, cassava, and tortillas. The first two nights, many adults and several children slept on the ground with no bedding and suffered from the cold nighttime temperature. Extra mattresses and blankets were purchased to correct for the shortfall. The health subcommittee saw to the treatment of drinking water and the general sanitary conditions around the plaza. Some of the adults also began teaching classes to the children for a part of the day, while the members of another subcommittee were charged with patrolling the camp for suspicious strangers. With the participation, but not direction, of several male and one or sometimes two female Gualaqueño protest leaders, the CODE consultant drew up a formal organizational chart for the group, an organigrama in the lexicon of Latin American development. He printed the diagram and gave copies to the heads of the various subcommittees. On this document, the Gualaqueños Organizing Committee was dubbed the Central Council for the Defense of the Environment of Gualaco Olancho, 
The council's most influential and charismatic leaders made sure they ended up with the important and prestigious job of communicating with the media. The details of the subcommittee's selection was a sore point for protesters who felt their voices were being marginalized and their viewpoints left out of consideration by the group's essentially self-appointed spokesmen. Some of the hard feelings amounted to little more than sibling rivalry, but one woman made the observation that mothers' and wives' perspectives were being sidelined. The leaders under scrutiny were apparently unused to such criticism. Their feelings seemed genuinely hurt by these accusations. Adelmo Salaya was one of these leaders. He and the other ringleaders made middling attempts to accommodate and incorporate others' views, but the open debate was rather quickly stifled with whispered warnings against revealing internal schisms to lurking in their HISA operatives. As a result, I never learned how community opposition to the dam project might carry gendered shadings. Anyway, all agreed the public relations task was particularly important, because prominent and their HISA allies, most notably Liberal Party congressman and head of Congress's Energy Committee, Jack Arrevalo, were attacking the dam protests in the news on a near-daily basis. Arevalo maintained that the protesters represented but a small and dissonant fraction of the larger pro-dam community in Guilaco. On one occasion, Arevalo cited records of the Secretariat of Natural Resources and the Environment that he claimed indicated a 90% approval rating for the dam in Guilaco. Another time, he informed the press that it had been confirmed that more than 50% of the population in Guilaco favored the dam and that the only opponents were the alcalde, the priest, and a few others. Arevalo impugned the protesters' legitimacy on other grounds as well. On July 5th, Tegucigalpa newspaper La Tribuna reported Arevalo's assertion that the anti-dam mobilization was being financed by the left-leaning Unificación Democrática party in order to gain votes in the November election. A July 13th article in El Heraldo featured Arevalo warning that the anti-dam campaign was, quote, provoking investors to be frightened away from the country. The newspaper article's paraphrasing of Arrevalo's accusation, Esta campaña está provocando que los inversionistas se ayunten del país, bore a strong resemblance to the caption featured at the bottom of an Energisa paid announcement that had come out in the papers the week before. Quote, Honduras needs to attract investment. Let's not frighten it away. The next day, on July 14th, the San Pedro Sula-based paper Tiempo quoted in their HISA legal counsel José Torres Torres as saying that the government should not allow itself to be manipulated, quote, by a small group of bored people who take an interest in hindering the development of this country. As exemplified in the cases above, characterizations of the protesters made by the dam's defenders tended to fall into one or more of three broad categories. Either the protesters did not really represent Gualaco, or they were the puppets of dark outside forces, or they were too backwards to deserve a say or a place in local development. The protesters not only did not represent the real Gualaco, they did not belong to the new Honduras. But what exactly was the new Honduras? What was Enerjiza's relationship to it? And why did key state actors view the dam protest as an impediment to national progress? To answer these questions fully would fall outside the scope of the present paper. Nevertheless, even a brief examination of the Honduran central state's struggles to develop its energy subsector in accordance with the dictates and guidelines of powerful international institutions 
can shed some light on the dynamics at work in the Babylonia case. It is important for starters to understand Honduras's deeply ambivalent and contradictory place within the history of Central American regional integration. For nearly two centuries, Central Americans have debated the merits and liabilities implied by the unification of the isthmus. Small steps in recent decades, such as the establishment of Parlesin and other regional economic and political deliberative bodies, have kept alive the prospect of a substantive unification sometime in the future. This dream of pan-Isthmian reunification, which holds some purchase in the popular sector, coincides rather neatly with the goal of multilateral investment banks and state governments to lower transaction costs for investment and trade in the region. A neoliberal blueprint for expanded foreign direct investment and increasingly unfettered communication and transportation throughout the Isthmus gains some of its legitimacy by piggybacking on the nostalgic desire of many Central Americans to come together again, to form one people. There is no question that many Hondurans have internalized the long-standing liberal project of bringing fractured Central America back together. Honduras's most widely celebrated hero, Francisco Morazan, was the first president of the short-lived Central American Federation in the early 19th century. His vision of a single Central American state endures symbolically on the stars of the Honduran flag and the volcano of its state shield. To borrow from Benedict Anderson's lexicon, the Honduran imaginary community inculcated through state-run schooling is one imbued with both Honduran and Central American nationalisms. Of course, this dual identity must contend with other forms of individual and community identity, for instance, spatial, kin, gender, and class identification, and falls short of capturing everyone's imagination. Still, even some harsh critics of the central state within Honduras tend to appeal to this sort of binomial nationalism that sees Honduras both as a sovereign state and as the mantle-bearer for a unified Central America. This cultivated affinity for Central American integration militates in favor of Honduras's taking part in regional integration schemes. On the other hand, Honduras's neighbors see that country as the weak link in the Central American chain. At the opposite end of the integration readiness continuum from Guatemala and El Salvador. Francisco Morazan is our hero too, say the Salvadorans. Too bad he was from Honduras, Todd Jailer, 2001. Since as early as the 1950s, Honduras has lagged behind its neighbors. This was exacerbated by Honduras's war with El Salvador in 1969. Honduran presidents since President Rafael Callejas elected in 1989, have adopted neoliberal prescriptions and have tried in earnest to edge Honduras closer to economic integration. But challenges have persisted. The fear of being left behind, whether by investors or by the rest of the Central American Isthmus, has repeatedly found its way into the text and subtext of the Honduran development debate, in some cases effectively legitimating repressive measures taken against opponents of progress. President Flores Facuse, in a speech delivered in August of 2000, made it clear his priorities lay in establishing the foundations for increasing integration. No party flag, no electoral platform, no political proposition can be cleaner and more realistic than those that take up the project of Central American integration. 
Honduran elites evince a conviction that Honduras's economic success must be bought at the price of a stricter disciplining of the popular sector, a price they seem willing to pay. As recently as August 31, 2001, no less a moral authority than Cardinal Oscar Rodriguez carried this theme in a speech delivered before the national police, in which he lamented Honduran's increasing propensity to strike and protest. If we're going to continue to develop a culture of striking, he said, the problem is that we're not going to have either investment or development, because logically no one wants to invest in a country where work doesn't get done. The don't scare off progress message has become the stock refrain of both the Honduran state and the country's investor class whenever civil society raises its voice against controversial development projects. The energy subsector, for Honduras as well as for other countries in the region, has been a major object of contention between advocates of privatization and those who do not believe the provision of electricity should be dictated only by market mechanisms. The creation of a single regional energy grid is a top priority for the architects of the Puebla-Panama Plan, or PPP, for regional integration. The energy sector component of the PPP has been spearheaded by the Inter-American Development Bank, the principal financier for the $330 million Electrical Interconnection System of Central American Countries, or CIAPAC. The Central American Bank for Economic Integration and the International Monetary Fund have also taken to the PPP with great enthusiasm, both banks making strategic use of conditionally loosened purse strings to encourage Honduras to generate, privatize, and interconnect its electricity for the benefit of the whole region. In January of 1998, National Electric Company spokesman Ricoberto Borjas was a cheerleader for the project, predicting a bright future for Hondurans with the advent of the free market CIAPAC regional energy grid. Meanwhile, graffiti sprayed on one building wall in Tegucigalpa's sister city of Comayaguela angrily conveyed the point that some things, like electricity, should not be so thoroughly commoditized. Quote, Let them privatize your mother. For international financiers, such infrastructural improvements are indispensable to attracting more direct foreign investment of all kinds in the region. With this goal in mind, the IDB, the Central American Bank, and the IMF have demanded certain changes in PPP member countries' legal frameworks to allow private sector vendors to provision cheaper and more consistent electrical energy to the region through the new unified CIAPAC power grid. The bank's basic technique is to forgive some old debt in exchange for government commitments to refashion themselves in the neoliberal mold. Meanwhile, these development banks route new loans into public and especially private projects aimed at linking the countries of the region. The Honduran government, perennially in financial arrears, has earned high marks from such organizations as the IMF, the IDP, the Central American Bank, and the World Bank, for the alacrity with which, in return for some debt relief and other assistance, it has adopted these multilateral lending institutions' tough prescriptions for greater economic health. A July 10, 2000 press release issued by the International Monetary Fund announced a $900 million debt service relief package for Honduras from all of the above-mentioned banks as part of their highly indebted Poor Countries Initiative 
and in quote, recognition by the international community of the country's progress in implementing reforms in macroeconomic, structural, and social policies. The $900 million, of course, is anything but free money. In order to secure this reduced interest rate plan, Honduras has had to meet specific sets of preconditions and promise to implement a full complement of further structural adjustments with each of the lending institutions. One precondition for IMF support was to boost revenues in the short term by raising the price of electricity to consumers. A further and related condition was the passage in the Honduran Congress of modifications to the Electricity Sector Framework Law to facilitate the privatization of the sale of electrical energy, which have historically been the sole province of state-owned ENE. Due to popular resistance to privatization of this government utility, this condition has proven particularly difficult for the Honduran government to meet, requiring the country's finance minister and the president of the Central Bank of Honduras to draft several letters to the IMF to request adjustments to the timeline for the completion of this phase of economic rationalizing. A passage from one such letter, written in May of 2000, illustrates the point well. Dear Mr. Kohler, I have the pleasure to inform you that the government of the Republic of Honduras has satisfactorily met four of the five prior actions required for the IMF Executive Board review of our second-year economic program under the Poverty Reduction and Growth Facility. The actions met include the approval of an action plan to reform the Honduran Social Security Institute, which required a great deal of effort on our part. However, it was not possible to achieve the approval of the framework law on the electricity sector, although it was at the third and final debate in the National Congress, which will recess during June 2000. Due to the deep-seated nature of the reforms formulated in this legislation, the framework law on the electricity sector has itself generated a heated debate among all sectors of Honduran society, which has taken time but we believe that it has the advantage of leading to legislation reached through consensus which will ensure the success of its implementation. We consider the delay in the approval of this law to be the appropriate part and parcel of the democratic process in the country, and we have been informed that the debate between the National Congress and the different sectors involved will reopen next July 1st, following the recess of the Legislative Chamber. It is important to point out that the government of Honduras will continue to commit all its efforts to achieve the approval of this law no later than September 30th of this year, and that we agree that approval would be a condition for the completion of the third review under Honduras's program. Castillo and Asfura de Diaz, 2000. By early July of 2001, a year after this letter was drafted, the National Congress had still not succeeded in passing the promised legislation. While the IMF has moved forward with the debt reduction plan, the Honduran Ministry of Finance and the National Congress have not been relieved of their outstanding obligation to clear the way for the privatized generation and transmission of electrical energy. This helps to explain why, as protests have threatened the viability of showcase electrical sector projects, the government has recently and repeatedly shown its willingness to tolerate and at times employ violence in order to keep these projects on track. The same banks that are helping to finance the CIPAC interconnection project are financing projects designed to plug into that system and provide electricity to the region's growing industrial sector. 
In recent years, state and transnational authorities have increasingly encouraged the exploitation of so-called clean, renewable sources of energy, which in practice has meant hydropower. There are several good reasons for this. For one thing, Honduras, with all its rivers, has a high level of hydroelectric potential. One large dam alone, El Cajon, is able to supply Honduras with close to 40% of its current energy demand. Overall, 60% of Honduras's energy comes from hydroelectric sources. Also, the principal alternative to hydroelectric power in Honduras, the coal-fired plant, has made for some angry, asthmatic neighbors who have gone so far as to sue the former Ene manager for his decision to approve the location of 12 thermal plants near a population center in northern Honduras. But more than this, hydropower has become a major priority for wealthy nations that worry about the negative repercussions that could redound upon their own populations due to dirty energy production methods in underdeveloped countries like Honduras. The Global Environmental Facility, or GEF, born of the 1992 Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro, provides financial incentives to poor countries not to generate certain kinds of pollution. In this case, not to produce greenhouse gases such as CO2. In light of Honduras's high degree of dependence upon the goodwill of multilateral institutions and foreign governments, the UN-administered GEF likely influences the Honduran government's energy production trajectory out of proportion to the modest $375,000 it has allocated to its clean energy program there. In August 2001, Honduras's Secretary of Natural Resources and the Environment co-sponsored a pan-Central American seminar with the UNDP and Central American Bank. The seminar was entitled Financial Options and Development Potential of the Renewable Energy Market. During the meeting, the UNDP representative is reported to have made a recommendation that each country of the Isthmus seek financing for its projects each and every time these projects, quote, contaminate the environment less and can be maintained over the long run, end quote. In keeping with the high premium the state was placing on both privatization and the production of clean energy, it was with a great deal of fanfare that on June 21, 2000, President Flores Facuse granted the country's first-ever concession to a private company, Energisa, to both build and operate a hydroelectric plant. The Babylonia Hydroelectric Project would be Energisa's first hydroelectric project, and it looked to many in the development community as the start of a bright new future for investment and progress in Honduras. The Central American Bank became the project's chief financier, putting up approximately $2.7 million of the project's estimated $5 million total cost. Two years after Rigoberto Borjas had used his bully pulpit at N.A. to sell Honduras on the virtues of a privatized regional energy grid, he was cashing in, serving as secretary of Energisa. Energisa's Proyecto Hidroeléctrico Babilonia, PHB, Energisa's PHB was in many ways the model development project. It was local. Its engineering and public relations personnel hailed from San Francisco de la Paz, Olancho, which abuts Gualaco to the southwest. It was small, and it was green, at least by that tautological form of reasoning that claims that all hydroelectric projects are environmentally benign. The company, well aware of the international trends that valued small dam projects as clean and sustainable alternatives to coal-burning plants or gigawatt megadams, adroitly exploited its project's attractiveness with smart flyers whose slogan read, 
Let's care for the forests, for a better Honduras. Thus recapitulating the catchword found on every license plate in the country. The Energisa brochure recalls the devastation occasioned by Hurricane Mitch in 1998 and suggests that projects like Babylonia would help advance, or sacar adelante, literally to pull forward the country and speed its recovery. It makes the point that the investors are Olanchanos and attests to their commitment, quote, to provide technical assistance to those denizens who may maintain crops close to the watershed so they might develop an agricultural activity that doesn't greatly alter the flora and fauna. The company would make a contribution as well in the creation of a culture for the preservation of the natural resources under the scheme of direct relations with these resources' concession of life. And their HISA brochure, 2000. For the Gualaqueño families who are growing organic coffee and bananas in the Babylonia watershed, Energisa's condescending tone was hard to bear. Energisa had positioned itself as a beneficent environmental steward who would bring the Rio Babylonia watershed under a more enlightened hand. Energisa's reference to peasants' crops implied the cultivation of high-impact annuals such as maize and beans. In fact, the majority of the disputed land was given over to the lucrative and stable coffee fincas that local farmers had planted years earlier in keeping with the terms of the National Park's buffer zone that they had haltingly grown to embrace. Rather than imparting the culture for the preservation of the natural resources of the area, Energisa's security guards effectively barred the Ocotaleños from tending to their coffee plants. Under the watch of armed guards, hundreds of hectares of coffee rotted on the branches in 2001. While continued access to coffee production opportunities formed the primary material basis for villagers' opposition to the PHB, there were other reasons as well. As many as 11 downriver communities would be left without the possibility of developing gravity-feed water systems because Energisa had successfully contracted with the central state for first rights to the river's flow. Honduran business magnate Jaime Rosenthal countered this complaint in a newspaper column by pointing out that, quote, the same quantity of water that goes into the turbines also comes out of them. What Rosenthal did not mention was that by capturing the river's flow and piping it 1,500 vertical feet down the northern flank of the Sierra, Energisa was appropriating the same kinetic energy that might have made these rural villages' water systems a viable possibility. For the people living in Ocotal, the discharged water not only would avail them nothing, it posed a safety hazard. Energisa would not be returning the water directly to the original riverbed. Instead, it would simply discharge the river's output into a tiny tributary creek that ran directly through the village. The potential impacts on the creek and on the village were not contemplated in the company's environmental impact statement. This oversight did not prevent Secretary Jomara Gomez from awarding Energisa an environmental operator's license, although the Honduran environmental prosecutor would later take her to court for this, alleging she had not consulted Energisa's report before conferring the license. Not least of all, Gualaqueños resented the breach of municipal self-determination represented by Energisa's ability to move forward with its project over the municipal government's strenuous objections. The Ley de Municipalidades was supposed to have devolved more power to the local level of government. Title III, Article 14, specifically charges municipalities with preserving the historical patrimony, 
with protecting the local ecosystem and environment, and with rationalizing the use and exploitation of the municipal resources in accordance with the established priorities and programs of national development. Title III, Article 14, Numbers 4, 6, and 8. While Aquinos interpreted these passages as declaring the municipal government's competence to decide which projects met criteria of rational use and consonance with the municipality's historical patrimony, the Ley del Ambiente also gave the municipality primary responsibility over national parklands falling within their borders. In the end, none of these de jure guarantees of local control over and access to the park's buffer zone or erstwhile promises to prioritize ecotourism were adequate to protect Gualaqueño campesinos from this unwanted incursion of capital interests from the territorially ambitious rival community of San Francisco de la Paz. In allowing Energisa to run roughshod over Gualaco's patrimonio, the Honduran central state had not only undermined the Ley de Municipalidades, it had broken its codefor brokered moral contract with the peasants of Babylonia. The Gualaqueños felt deeply betrayed, and they expressed their dissatisfaction in some creative ways during their stay in the capital city. Problematically, even paradoxically, in light of the government's severe credibility deficit among the Gualaqueños, the villagers continued to publicly direct their appeals to the central state. The villagers knew the odds were against them, but of course they had no other state to appeal to. Their supplications were loud and public, however, aimed as they were to rouse Tegucigalpa's complacent civil society from its slumber and exert enough pressure upon Congress or the President to force them to act on the protesters' behalf. In the days leading up to the villagers' arrival in the capital, the human rights organization Cofade had put together a large four-foot-by-eight-foot poster depicting Energisa's alleged misconduct. On Wednesday, July 4th, this poster was brought to the Capitol Plaza to coincide with the arrival of the Gualaco contingent. Its contents consisted of three panels of photos and text. In the center panel of the triptych, photographs of Carlos's weeping parents' presentation of their son's bullet-riddled body seemed to most effectively capture passers-by's attention. Hundreds of capitalinos stopped by the poster, which was always attended by one or more interpreters from Ocutal, or neighboring village. By the morning of July 6th, the poster had become imbued with an enormous amount of symbolic importance for the protesters. An unlikely rumor circulated that desperate Energisa operatives were offering up to $10,000 to strangers on the street if they could steal or destroy this conspicuous and damning bit of evidence. Villagers jealously guarded it around the clock, even sleeping on top of it at night to prevent its loss. The poster's rhetorical and symbolic importance seemed to owe to two main factors. First, it was highly unusual for poor villagers to have at their disposal evidence that could directly contest official versions of the truth. The purchase of journalists' services is a matter of course in Honduras. To illustrate the pervasiveness of the problem, it is sufficient to note that the current president of the National Congress, Porfirio Lobo, recently donated a sizable parcel of land to the journalists of his hometown of Juticalpa Olancho for them to develop or sell as they wished. The parcel is known locally as the Colony of the Journalists. Especially when newsworthy events transpire in isolated locations, journalists will typically cover the story only if they can find a sponsor. 
In the cases of Carlos's killing, the first newspaper story to cover the event was written by a journalist who never visited the scene. The same reporter who ten years earlier had spread the false story about Canuto firing on the priest and forcing him to imbibe the palm wine. A second reporter with an Olancho beat literally hid in his bedroom when I visited his home on the day after the murder to request he cover the story. The photographic evidence presented on the poster damaged the credibility of the journalist's description of a mutual shootout between Carlos and the security guards. Second, the poster bore the stark image of a bleeding martyr, which implied the presence of presumably foreign oppressors. If Gualaco was in favor of the dam, who was this perforated man surrounded by weeping loved ones in the village chapel? The mere presence of so many armed guards at the generation plant and at the dam site itself would seem to give the lie to assertions by Congressman Arevalo and others that Gualaqueños supported the project. The graphic images of Carlos's defunct body complemented the weeping testimony of his mother, delivered over national radio, as she categorically denied local status to the dam's perfidious supporters. I asked that something be done, that my death of my son not remain like this, that something be done against those people, because we are not troublemakers, nor are we treading on other people's land. It's our own, and they have gone to offend, and they have gone to meddle in the montaña and get us out of there, but that they will never see. Dead first, just as they have killed me, my son. That's why my son died, she sobbed. For what is ours? Carlos's mother, Rosa, represented her son's killers as foreign invaders, and the evidence presented by the dam's opponents supported that interpretation. The demonstrators, the Gualaqueños together with sympathetic political, Catholic, and human rights organizations from the capital, very quickly raised Carlos to the status of an environmental martyr. They styled him after two outspoken environmentalists, by serendipity both also named Carlos, who had been murdered in eastern Honduras in recent years. Carlos's martyrdom gave the protesters the legitimacy they needed to cast themselves as a movement for the defense of the environment. In life, Carlos had been an organic coffee farmer, proud of his successful experiments in intercropping and integrated pest management. He fought and died to preserve village access to their means of livelihood. Through the successful public relations efforts of the protesters, this livelihood struggle became explicitly environmentalist. As early as July 5th, the Argentine version of Yahoo News depicted Flores as a, quote, environmentalist leader. Other wire services and many ENGOs followed suit. Suddenly, within a few short days of his death, Carlos became the literal poster boy of an environmentalist discourse that pitted Gualaqueño defenders of Sierra de Agalta National Park against the depredations of greedy thugs from another municipality. As for the Gualaco versus the outsiders element of the story, there was just one problem, spoken softly and scarcely repeated. With this picture, Ocotaleños were quietly sure that Carlos had been betrayed by his own brother. He was the only one who could have told the gunmen when Carlos would be bathing. Environmentalism and exclusivist claims of localness were not the only tools seized upon by the resourceful villagers in their protest. One of their number was a 21-year-old little person named Oscar Manuel Cardona. Apart from his deep-set eyes, Oscar looked just like a seven-year-old boy, 
And indeed, whenever reporters came looking for a story, Oscar played the part. For a brief period, Oscar became a media star, dazzling interviewers with his preternatural eloquence and poise. One by one, these reporters grew wise to Oscar's secret, but the villagers played this card as long as they were able to. In fact, the villagers themselves tended to look upon Oscar as a child. The poor man was the constant object of delighted mothering by the group's sizable clutch of 11-year-old girls. At one point, I took Adelmo aside and pointed out that people's treatment of Oscar was unfair to him. Adelmo, surprised at first, came to agree with me, but this revelation did not prevent the Media Relations Committee from sending a letter requesting an audience with Honduras' First Lady, signed by Oscar Manuel, quote, in representation of the children who find ourselves here in Tegucigalpa. Some of the male protesters also participated in a publicity stunt that cleverly poked fun at their own alterity. Several members of Energisa's top brass were completely bald. One day, the protesters invited the media and passers-by to join them for free haircuts. Only one hairstyle was on offer. Bald. Though no one from the general public accepted the Gualaqueños winking offers of a free head shave, several of the protesters, including me, went under the clipper. Many of the women from the group lined up too, but their husbands quickly put a stop to that. The protesters' reasoning, obviously tongue-in-cheek, was that the government seemed only to listen to bald people. Perhaps the Gualaqueños would have more luck getting through to their congressmen if they had shaved heads too. One jovial demonstrator laughingly alluded to racial undercurrents that might be clouding the politicians' decision-making. Si los políticos no quieren escuchar a los peludos, pues nos convertiremos en pelones. If the politicians don't want to listen to the Harrys, well, we'll convert ourselves into baldies. By Sunday, July 8th, I was staying with the protesters mostly around the clock, even sleeping with them on the cement plaza floor at night. This gesture ingratiated me with the protesters, who became almost embarrassingly protective of me while I was there. Still, they did not hesitate to make frequent use of me and my camera. Several times daily, someone from the camp would ask me to photograph some suspicious-looking person they had seen perambulating in the vicinity and listening in on planning meetings. I became aware that, in fact, numerous people were spying on the group. Several of these people also began following me whenever I would leave the camp to run errands. They usually went away when I conspicuously photographed them. Two of these people, however, approached me and harassed me, speaking English as they did so. In each case, the harasser angrily yelled at me that I was a meddling foreigner who was sabotaging Honduran efforts to develop its industry and economy. Each of these men, both of them young and about the same age as each other, used very similar phrasing. Quote, you fucking American, and quote, this is none of your business. These details convinced me that they had been hired to intimidate me. As the protest entered its second week, the protesters realized they would have to communicate and coordinate with members of the Civil Council of Indigenous and Popular Organizations of Honduras, COPIN, a predominantly Lenca Indian organization from western Honduras that was planning its own yearly march on the capital. July 20th is Dia de Lempira, when martyred Chief Lempira is honored. Several years ago, Copin activists tore down a statue of Christopher Columbus on the Capitol Plaza and replaced it with one of Chief Lempira, 
Removing the statue would have been politically untenable for Congress, so the politicians made the best of things by embracing the image and attempting to co-opt it. Every July 20th, Congress lays a wreath next to the statue and proclaims its pride in Honduras' shared Indian heritage. And every July 20th, Copine activists arrive to denounce the Honduran government's hypocrisy and to demand Congress keep its promises to the primarily Lenca communities of western Honduras. On Sunday, July 15th, I volunteered to drive a small group of Gualaqueños to the western city of La Esperanza to meet with Copine leaders. When we arrived, we found the Copine leadership delivering a fairly sophisticated lecture on dependency theory to a huge room full of campesinos. On hearing the Gualaqueños' case, these leaders pledged Copine's solidarity with the protest and promised to adopt the dismantling of Energisa as one of its own primary demands before the government. Copine, as it happened, was fighting a dam project too. The El Tigre project that stands to affect the provinces of Entibuca and Lempira, near the western border with El Salvador. The organization's leadership felt it important to stand beside the Gualaqueños in solidarity, deciding, therefore, that Copin would send an advanced dispatch of 80 members to join the Gualaco group on Monday. Another 1,000 or more would arrive on Wednesday, July 18th. The first group arrived on Monday, as promised, one of their coordinators, Candido Martinez, gave me a short stump speech in response to a question about the relevance of Gualaco to Copin's mission. Quote, Lempira fought for the country. He didn't fight for a community. I believe our brothers in Gualaco are providing an example for the country at the international level, for the unions and the popular organizations, bueno, for the whole world, that where there's a will, there's a way when one chooses to defend a right, although they walk over your dead body, end quote. The key concept implicit in Candido's statement was the universality of the right to self-determination. One village's struggle for autonomy is every village's struggle. What is more, it is the whole country's struggle, the whole world's struggle. Gualaco's fight was thus both very local and thoroughly global. The theme of unity and diversity was one that the members of Copin believed in, which they demonstrated by their impressive support of their new allies from Gualaco. On Tuesday, members of the Copin leadership, together with Gualaco Mayor Rafael Ulloa and other community representatives, called a press conference to denounce Congress's indifference to Carlos Flores's murder and to the community's demands. After reading their statements, the spokespeople led the protesters into the street in front of the Capitol and blocked traffic for one hour. This action took place with the understanding of the police who facilitated the rerouting of traffic to minimize the chance of automobile accidents. The press coverage of the event was heavy and for the most part favorable. The show of solidarity between Copin and the Gualaqueños led many reporters, as well as the public at large, to begin identifying the latter group as indigenous. Suddenly, the Gualaqueños were really in vogue, constructed as they now were, as both environmentalists and an autochthonous people. That afternoon and evening, spirits ran high.